Okay. Turn your Bibles to Mark, Mark chapter 9, please. Y'all do have your Bibles with you. Huh? I hope you don't depend on what goes up here and what I tell you it says, okay? Come on, guys. Check me out. Bring, bring that Bible. We're all of the same generation. We like to feel it, touch it, smell it, and taste it. So bring your copy of Scripture, all right? We're going to talk about something that I picked up. I've read this passage I don't know, it wouldn't be hard to say a thousand times. And and always, this didn't come out at me. But I think it's in the day and age that we live in. Uh, This transfiguration, this part of Scripture, uh, the latter part of chapter 8, going into chapter 9, is kind of like the peak of the book of Mark. This is where it peaks and from... Everything goes from that, and it begins uh, in the in chapter eight in the twenty ninth verse. Uh, Jesus has just asked his disciples. He said, "Guys, who do people say that I am?" And that's one of the most important questions in the world. Uh, those are the things that will either cause me to draw to someone in fellowship in Christ. Or remove myself from it. The question of who is Jesus. And it doesn't matter who Jesus is to me. Or to Pastor Joe. Pastor Cord. Or anybody else. It matters who he is to you. And, and sometimes we don't think about that. Jesus is not a secondary figure of the word of God. He is preeminent from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation when he returns and sets up his kingdom. Peter had a wonderful answer. He simply said, you're the Christ, the Christos, the Messiah, the one who has come. Now that was, (coughs) excuse me, a spirit-led observation on Peter's part. Because Jesus said, flesh and blood hasn't uh, revealed this to you. It was revealed to you by the Spirit. So when we look at the book of Mark, and y'all, please, excuse me, everything that comes before in the book of Mark leads up to Peter's confession, who Jesus is. And then everything after that flows from the confession of who is Jesus. You see... It's okay politically to talk about God as long as you don't define him. But when the name Jesus comes up, those are fighting words to the critics. You see, Jesus is God. And Jesus is the Savior. (coughs) Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the hope in which the nation and the world prayed for, looked for, hoped for, and now he's here. Isn't that good? All right. Gene, I hope I I didn't put all of the first uh, one through eight down together, but I'm sure you have it back there. So I want to read uh, this text that we're going to go from, okay? Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9, he says, Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here 
will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come in power. The kingdom of God has come in power. Because, you see, the people were still very much divided, as were the disciples, on what it meant for Jesus to come. Okay? They're, they're still wondering. They, they, uh, Peter confesses he's the Messiah. There are thousands of people that knows that he can heal. He can do miracles. And yet, there's confusion on why. Why he came and what his role is. And this verse, uh, is, I, I laugh. There are people that say this verse proves the Bible is not correct. Did you know that? And they say, because Jesus said there were people standing there. Who was standing there? His disciples. That would be standing there when he returned. But you see, that's not what that scripture says. He said there are people standing here. The people standing there who would see that the kingdom has come. Peter, James, and John. Because they're going to go on a mountain, probably Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was 9,200 feet high. It was the highest uh, mountain in this region. And so for that reason, people think it's Mount Hermon. Uh, So they are going to go. And Jesus is going to be transfigured. What does that mean? Well, the Greek word is metamorpho. It's a word we get our metamorphosis from. Metamorphosis means to be radically, radically transformed. It's a radical transformation of something. When we, we read this scripture, uh, we go down. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him. Led them up on a high mountain where he was transfigured. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared with him Elijah and Moses. They were talking with Jesus. Jesus' countenance. Words limit us to understand what this actually means. But it's in some way the, the glory of God, the purity of God, this Shekinah glory appeared to them and appeared to Jesus as he was there. And, and it was a radical transformation. In fact, that word is only used four times in the New Testament. It's used here. It's used in Matthew 17 when Matthew uh, gives his uh, version of the transfiguration, and it's also used in Roman 12. Let's look at how it's used in Romans 12. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be metamorphosed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul said, we in Christ will be radically transformed through our mind. Uh, that, that's very important because 
as a person thinks, so he is. Uh, if you don't believe that, just kind of make some notes on what you do during the day and why you say certain things and how, why you feel certain things. And think about what your mindset was. If you wake up and the first thing that you say in the morning, uh, you, someone says to you, good morning, and you say, why is it a good morning? Well, I can tell you, I will prophesy, your day will stink, okay? Because you're going to look at it from a standpoint, this is a bad day and nothing good is going to happen. That's what happens in our Christian walk. We get our mind out of gear. So Paul is saying, we need to be, we need to radically transform our mind. Not like the pattern of this world, the pattern of thinking, the pattern of living, the pattern of talking. We need to be radically transformed. And when we're radically transformed, something radical happens. We, we begin to understand this thing called God's will. It's also uh, mentioned in Second Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever increasing joy. Think about that. Which comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Think about what that's saying. We are all radically being transformed. You see, the change from your life apart from Christ to your life in Christ is a radical change. And if it is not, then chances are no change has occurred. Because there is a radical difference between being one in Christ and one who is not a part of Christ, doesn't love Christ, doesn't want to be of Christ. We need to understand what a wonderful thing happens. It's not just, okay, now I'm part of a body of Christ. Now I'm a Christian, yada, yada. No, we have been transformed from a death mask that we wear in this life until a living mask, the living image of the Son of God. And in order to stay on track, we simply continually renew our thinking so that we're not pulled down by the thinking of this world. Because this world says, you are of no real value. It doesn't matter whether you live or you die. And if you don't think that's that's so, check about, let's just say, health care. Do you know there are certain tests and certain things that they won't give people when they get our age? You know why? Because we're old. So you don't need that anymore. Your life is not valuable. This is what the world says to you. And to prove it's not valuable, we'll kill babies. We will help you go online and, and get uh, deliver to your house a suicide kit so you can take your life and get out of the way of people. That's the message that's constantly coming forth. 
God's message is very simple. You are so valued in life. I love you so much that the only way that I can bring you back to myself is to offer my son on a cross and have him defaced, have him flogged, have him bleed and die to become the perfect sacrifice, the worthy lamb of God. That's why when we get to heaven, we're going to sing 7-Eleven songs. And you know what they're going to say? Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. And from what I read, that's all we're going to sing. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. We need to understand and get in practice today in the life that we live. He is worthy of our life. There, uh, when you go a little further, Jesus asked a question. What will you give in exchange for your life? I'd like to turn that question around a little bit. What have you given in exchange from your life? By that I mean very simply. We like to sing an old song, I Surrender All. I contend that that is organized lying sometimes in a church. Well, we all get together and, and stand and lie when we sing. Because the question comes down, have we given it all? Everything. See, God doesn't want a little bit of us. He created all of us. He's given us everything that we have. And Jesus says, you just give me that back. And I'm going to show you what real life is all about. It's about being able to face whatever the devil in this world can throw at you and know that there is a hope that is within you in which we will overcome. Give it. What will a person hold back? What is worth more than your soul? That's a question we need to kind of ask every day. Well, let me kind of go on. I'll run a little rabbit there. That's all right. You notice, let me give you the setup. Luke's gospel tells them, tells us that when Peter, James, and John, and Jesus went on the mountain, they went to sleep. I think it's, I, I don't know if Jesus prayed a long time or what. But when they went to the garden... To pray with Jesus, they went to sleep. It seems like every time Jesus brought them aside to see something, brought them aside to teach them something, they went to sleep. Which kind of reminds me, how many times have I gone to sleep? When God is trying to talk to me. But Peter was asleep. And you got to love Peter. Peter wakes up and he's groggy and there it is. There's Moses and Elijah. There's the law and the prophets. There are probably the two greatest men mentioned in all of Israel's history. And there they are. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his death. When you read in the book of Luke, it says they're discussing his departure. His departure is his death, the sacrificial death 
that he'll die on the cross. And they're talking about this. Peter didn't get in on this. He just woke up and there they are. Now, here's the key with Peter and the boys. They love the prophecies that talked about Jesus setting up his kingdom on earth. The scribes and the Pharisees loved the prophecies of Jesus setting up a kingdom because they imagined a military kingdom. Uh, they imagined a kingdom where they were in charge and the Romans were in jail and it was just a, a great time. That's what they imagined. But Jesus had already said to his disciples, boys, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to be resurrected. And Peter once again let his flesh speak and begin to rebuke Jesus. And Jesus identified him as Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. That's why I've come. So, okay, here is the person that they've left everything for talking about dying. They want a kingdom set up. They wake up out of sleep, and there is Elijah and Moses and Jesus. So Peter blurts out, let's make three tents. Let's make three tabernacles. And we'll set them up on this mountain, and we'll all stay here. <coughs> Excuse me. And the kingdom of God will come. You see, that was what was in Peter's mind. He didn't have anything, uh, you know, bad to, he didn't want to interrupt, but he did. You know, sometimes we just speak when we ought not to. You know, my wife the other night, she decided she had cooked, she hadn't cooked in a long time, and she made this casserole. And it's kind of scary because she tasted it first and said, this is awful. <laughs> and so I put my arm around her and I said, honey, no, this is not the worst casserole you've ever made. <laughs> She's mad at me. Sometimes you just, what you're going to say doesn't come out. And you know, that's exactly what happened to Peter. He loved his Savior so much, he didn't want him to die. In fact, Peter took an ear off looking for a head to thinking he was going to protect Jesus. But you see, Jesus brought these men to this mountain to show this. My kingdom has begun. The gathering of the kingdom of God is here. Now, what is the two words that jumped out at me in this passage? Well, I'm going to tell you. Said after that point, a cloud came over him and a voice from heaven said, this is my son. Listen to him. And when they looked around, they only saw Jesus. Only Jesus. Let me tell you why that spoke to me. <laughs> because I think today, it's not so much the sin that we commit that envelops us. 
that has caused us to lose the power as a body of Christ. Now, sin will cause you to lose your power. But here's what I think. I think it's a whole lot of good stuff that we put first. Let me give you a a story found in Luke 10. There were three people that lived on the side near the Mount of Olives. Two sisters and a brother, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And they invited Jesus over for dinner. And when Jesus got there, he sat down in the living room and Mary sat at his feet and scriptures record he started talking to Mary. Well, here's Martha. She's got biscuits in the oven. She's frying pork chops. She got mashed potatoes. She's getting ready to make the gravy. The greens are on. I mean, she's got sweat coming off of her like crazy. And there's her sister sitting talking to Jesus. So she goes in there and says, Jesus, (laughs) tell my sister to help me. I mean, she was putting the dew on for Jesus. Jesus said something. Martha, (laughs) you're busy and worried about a lot of things. But only one thing is important. Can I say to you sometime as a pastor, I get busy doing a lot of things. They're all good. And I get busy doing stuff for Jesus. Planning stuff. Training. All this stuff I do. And you know what happens? Sometimes I wonder why I'm ineffective, and it's because only one thing is really necessary, and that's Jesus. Now, am I saying I don't need to train, preach, do stuff? No, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying the Bible prescribes how we are to do what I call our Christian stuff. Number one, none of us have a ministry. I hear that all the time. Pastor, that's my ministry. I think you're wrong. I think the only ministry we have in life is Christ's ministry. And he equips us and invites us to come do his ministry. It's not mine. And when it becomes mine, I make a mess of it. Now, I know as pastors, we like you to take ownership I like the word partnership because it's Jesus stuff. So just for kicks and grins, I Googled putting Jesus first. And here's what Google said. Start your day with prayer. Good. Create a verse card. Subscribe to a Christian broadcast. Commit to reading one Christian book a month. Play a morning sermon. Journal your faith. Pray through the day. Good. Take every struggle to God. Do you hear those good things? Where is Jesus first? That means what I do in life, I do for him. 
When I think about life, I think of life in light of him. So I went to the Bible, and there was just hundreds of verses. I'm just going to read you four, I think. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mountain, was talking about people who worry about what they got on their their clothes, what they're going to eat, where they're going to live, where they're going to work. All the stuff, not bad stuff, good stuff. But your life gets bogged down worrying about it. Jesus come up and said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. What is his kingdom and righteousness? It is the reign and rule of Jesus Christ in your life. And so when you set out the day that today I want to glorify God in everything I think, everything I do, and everything I say, that's seeking first. Jesus, because we bear his image, and we want to not mar that image. Proverbs 3, 6 says, in everything you do, put God first, and he will direct and crown your efforts. Proverbs 16, 3, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Colossians 3, 1 and 2, if then you have been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not things on earth. And finally, Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I'm saying to you is this. Why do you do the things that you do. Why? Why do you volunteer? Why, why do you do these things? I'm glad you do. We need more. But I want to tell you, according to the Word of God, there is a prescription of what will bear fruit and what will bear not. And when we put Jesus Christ First, he's the first person. Have you ever seen those uh, circular, uh, uh, they're little tricks. They got three rings and they're all hooked together. And if you, you get one of them just in the right place, all three of them come apart. And you see, in our life, if we don't get Jesus in the right place, we come apart. But when the priority is Christ, to bring him glory and honor... Do you realize we are not our own? We have been bought with a price. And that price is the blood of Jesus Christ. We are his workmanship created for good works. And even when we allow the good things we do to get in the way and overshadow Jesus, we're going in the wrong path, folks. Jesus must be preeminent in everything that we do, in every thought that we think, preeminent. And when I read those words, only Jesus, I shed a tear. Because there's some time in my life, I'm just going to tell you, I do stuff for me. It's good stuff. Sometimes I like to be seen. Sometimes I like to be successful. 
none of those things are bad. But if they go before my Savior, to me, that's sin. Because I'm going to tell you what this world needs to see. And the only thing this hope this world has is to see Jesus, the real Jesus, the healer of wounds, the Savior, the one who will radically transform us so that we can face any and every storm that comes in life and be victorious. I guess the moral of this story could be be careful when you go to sleep in Jesus' presence. <laughs> you may not believe what you see when you open your eyes. Put him first. If Christ is not first in your life, in fact, if Christ is not your life, your life is not worth living. Okay? That has nothing to do with you as a person. No life is worth living if it's not Christ's life. And we offer that to you today, Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a day you need to just simply say, okay, from day one, I'm just going to walk with Jesus and put him first in my life. I'll tell you to put some pep in your step and hope in your soul. Fathers, we come to you today. Thank you for your word. It always challenges us, but it always revives us. So I pray today that your word will accomplish everything that you have sent it out to accomplish. In Christ's name, amen.